The governor has a, really an unfettered power to pardon. But you yourself I haven't say you're engaged in I haven't politics. sold a single pardon, a single parole, or none of my people have. One of the names on the new list might be James Earl Ray. And I told him, I said, I think you've got to take uh, uh, office early in order to stop what's going on. There's no other remedy available. And the second thing I knew, that this was basically a coup. This is a unique situation. This had never happened. This coup had never happened anywhere in our country in just this way. January 19th, Governor Bill Haslam will hand off power to Williamson County businessman Bill Lee, who will become the 50th governor of the state of Tennessee. Lee's inauguration comes roughly 40 years to the day after an unbelievable set of circumstances led to the early swearing-in of Governor Lamar Alexander. On January 17, 1979, the 38-year-old East Tennessee Republican joined forces with key Democratic leaders, the Chief Justice of the state Supreme Court, and a U.S. attorney who were forced into action because of controversies surrounding then-Governor Ray Blanton. This is the story of an unprecedented coup. Welcome to Grand Divisions. I'm Joel Ebert. This is the week of January 21st. The following episode, you will hear from some of the major players involved in what later became known as the coup. You'll hear from Lamar Alexander, Keel Hunt, Hal Harden, Bill Koch, and a few others. But first, to set the scene, you've got to remember, back in the 1970s, Tennessee was still dominated by Democrats. It wasn't what it is today, now dominated by Republicans. Uh, Ray Blanton had been elected in that year in 1974, beating 11 other Democrats in a primary. But the catch, uh, and, and which was a boon for him, was that at that point, and still in Tennessee, we don't have a primary runoff law. So with 11 candidates, he arguably had the highest name recognition. He won, but with only 23 percent of the primary vote. Well, I'm Keel Hunt, grew up in Nashville. And uh, many years later, I wrote the book uh, called The Coup. On the national level, Republicans were rocked by the 1974 resignation of President Richard Nixon, who resigned after the Watergate scandal. By the time they got to the um, November election, the, the way in which the Blanton versus Alexander general election campaign was going was, was swamped by uh, national political news. That was then the uh, summer when President Nixon resigned. Vice President uh, Gerald Ford succeeded him. And then the, the killing shot, so to speak, was then when President Ford pardons Nixon. Here's current U.S. Senator Lamar Alexander. I sunk. I could feel my campaign sinking. And on Election Day, I could, I could see people coming down out of the mountains and asking who the Republican was so they could vote against the Republican. And we lost county tax assessors and people all over the state, all over the country. In the 1978 election, Governor Ray Blanton could have run for re-election, but ultimately decided against it. By that point, Blanton had faced multiple scandals during his time in office. 
1977, his administration faced scrutiny from the FBI after several state employees, including two commissioners, were investigated for selling surplus state-owned cars to political allies. But before that, in 1976, there was another event that really tipped the FBI off into a whole new direction. In the following clip, you'll hear Jack Lowry, a Lebanon-based attorney who received an unusual visit that really kind of set a bunch of activity into motion. Lowry describes what happens in this clip, and another name you're going to need to know is Marie Rajanti. Rajanti later became the chairwoman of the state parole board, which is an important role in all of this story. And on a Friday afternoon, about 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon, I was in my office and this gentleman came in, and he was smoking a cigar and had a, uh, a one of those Panama shirts on, uh, different color uh, leisure shirts. And uh, uh, I was on the phone. When I got off, he said, can I talk with you? And I said, sure. Brought him into the office, and he said, uh, I understand you have a client named Will Midget. And I said, I do. And he said, I understand you've applied for executive clemency. And I said, that's right. At this point, he stood up and pulled out a wad of money out of his pocket, and he said, I would like for this uh, uh, interview uh, or this conversation to be confidential, and I need to hire you as my lawyer. And I said, well, if you do that, I can't pass the information to my client. And so he didn't realize that wasn't exactly right, but he put the money back in his pocket and sat down, and he said, I can be of some assistance to you in this uh, uh, clemency uh, thing you're asking for. And he says, I can give you the time he'll be released uh, and uh, the, the, there will be no conditions on his release and he will not have to go to Florida. And he said, it's going to cost $20,000. And I said, oh, okay. Anyway, I asked him his name. He said his name was Bob Roundtree. And I said, well, and let me have your phone number. I'll talk to my client. I'll get back in touch with you. He said, no, I'll get in touch with you. You just tell me when you want me to call. I said, well, I need uh, probably seven days, six or seven days. And he said, well, what about next Thursday? And I said, that'll be fine. And uh, whereupon then he got up and left my office. At that point, Lowry reported this information to both Marie Rajanti and state officials who were going to investigate Roundtree's visit. Ultimately, that report from Lowry ended up in the hands of the FBI. I fully, that's why I called my district attorney. I'd been offered a bribe, not a bribe, but asked for a bribe uh, to do an official thing through government. And so I'd been solicited uh, for for $20,000. And I'm a lawyer. If I, you know, if I'd have gone along with that, it would I would have been participating and probably charged in a damn criminal act. That same year, again, 1977, Blanton faced continued ire after he did an interview, a live interview at that, with Carol Marine, a WSMV reporter. During the interview, Blanton did some very unusual things. Some folks later thought he was drunk during the interview. Here are excerpts from it. We're taking this section of the scene at six to have a live interview with Governor Ray Blanton about the corrections department, amongst other topics. Thank you for coming, Governor. It's a pleasure. I'm elected politician. I have the authority, I have the trust of the people that elected me. Also in the name of news governor, getting back to Roger Humphrey's case. Right. Again, someone whom you say proved himself, <clears throat> right. but behind the wall here in Nashville, had only two months to do that. Again, the question of equity. 
with other prisoners who may not have the political connections that Roger Humphreys has. The question is, my judgment vested in me under the Constitution of the state of Tennessee, the people at work for me, is that he merited this. And I'm going to announce to you now that before I go out of office, he's going to be pardoned. But you yourself say you're engaged in politics. I haven't sold a single pardon, a single parole, or none of my people have. A little bit more about Roger Humphreys. His father was a political ally of the governor, so at one point he called him a, quote, nice young man in this same interview with Carol Marine. Well, you know, Roger was not a fine young man. I mean, he he was deep in trouble, and he had uh, killed his ex-wife and her friend with 18 pistol shots from a two-shot Derringer. Now, you stop and think about that. You know, the the, the first three or four shots, you could say, well, it might have been a crime of passion, but... uh, You know, uh, having to reload nine times uh, makes you think. Humphreys had been out of prison for a little bit on what was then like a work release program. At one point in 1977, a reporter named Lee Smith, then with the Tennessee Journal, uh, was inside the office of then House Speaker Ned McWhorter, and he saw Humphreys, who came in to take a photo of McWhorter as his sort of day job, I guess. Keel Hunt, in his book, Coup, describes this scene between Humphreys and Smith in a little bit of interesting fashion. Here it is. Humphreys says, you're Lee Smith. Smith responds, yes, Roger. How are you doing? Humphreys says, I'm doing pretty well under the circumstances. So at one point, McWhorter's photo is taken. Roger Humphreys, again, the uh, man who murdered two people, departs. And Smith asks then-speaker Ned McWhorter, I can't believe who just took your picture. McWhorter responds, what do you mean? Smith says, that's Roger Humphreys. He's supposed to be out at the main prison, locked up behind bars, and he's here taking pictures, supposedly for the state's photographer's office. By 1977, when this interview that Carol Marine did with Governor Blanton happened, the relationship that he had with the press was contentious, to say the least. Here's reporter David Fox then with the Nashville Banner, a major player at the time, describing the relationship between Blanton and the press. From the moment that he announced that he was going to pardon Roger Humphreys, uh, the, the, the press and the governor were pretty much uh, at war. And, um, and it would come out at, during press conferences. He would hold press conferences. There was a point at which he said, that he was not going to be taking any more negative questions at press conferences. Uh, so it was, it, was, uh, it was pretty antagonistic being on the Hill. And at the same time, you were up there every day. and He was up there every day and just you weren't spending a lot of time interacting with him. But the closer he came to the end of his term and, the, and the, when, at the point when he granted uh, the pardon uh, to Roger Humphreys and, and a group of others, uh, it, it became – all-out war. Beyond all the relationship that Blanton had with the press, we've got to move on with the story and move back to the story of Lamar Alexander, the key player in this. In the 1978 Republican primary, Alexander didn't really face much opposition. The bigger fight was in the Democratic primary, where Alexander tried to actually seize some of the divisions that occurred during that primary and use them to his advantage in the general election, where he faced Jake Butcher. Uh, Another thing was there had been a very bitter Democratic primary. Bob Clement uh, of the Clement family was a strong candidate, and so was Jake Butcher. And Butcher called Bob Little Bob, and feelings weren't very good. And so 
lot of the Clement people came my way, either privately or publicly, in the general election. And I was able to carry a lot of Middle Tennessee Democratic counties. That was a rough-and-tumble race. Uh, today in Tennessee, where we, we've suddenly become a, a one-party Republican state, but back then we were very nearly uh, uh, at least a very competitive state. Uh, most of the office holders in Nashville were, were Democratic. And, and when I was elected governor in 1978, I was about the only Republican in town. The Supreme Court, the, the constitutional officers, big majorities in the legislature, the lobbyists, everybody was a Democrat. Alexander ultimately defeated Butcher in the November 7, 1978 general election. He got 55% of the vote to Butcher's 44%. Two months after the general election, Blanton's administration was further rocked by scandal. On December 15th of 78, the FBI, you know, which has meanwhile been doing their work, executes a, uh, a sweep in three different locations, and they arrest three people. One is the, um, the governor's legal counsel named Eddie Sisk, and they arrest him at his office in our state capitol. They they uh, put place him under arrest. They uh, search him, and in his pockets they find uh, one hundred dollar bills. In the same hour, other agents um, uh, made an arrest at the national airport, and they arrested uh, governor's um, extradition officer, who reported to the legal counsel. And he didn't have a hundred dollar bills in his pocket, but he had a briefcase, and in the briefcase he had he had clemency papers for a particular person who'd been under person of interest to the FBI. And in the same hour, but in Memphis, uh, other agents arrested a man named Fred Taylor, who was the uh, a lieutenant on the Tennessee Highway Patrol, who was the head of the governor, Governor Blanton's security detail. With recorded conversations of Taylor, again, Blanton's bodyguard, the government said all three men, Sisk, Benson, and Taylor, were part of a scheme to sell pardons for prisoners. Over the course of the next month, the machinations of the FBI's investigation would appear regularly on the front pages of the Tennessean and more frequently, the banner. On January 4th, for example, the banner reported a grand jury had viewed videotapes of transactions in the bribery scheme. The next day, the newspaper reported that FBI agents returned to the Capitol to question Blanton's newest legal counsel and staffers. In an afternoon press conference on January 6th, Blanton told reporters he was the target of a grand jury investigation into alleged abuses and pardons and parole procedures. As the daily headlines continued, Blanton maintained his innocence, ultimately culminating in his January 11, 1979 State of the State Address. Speaking to the newly convened 91st General Assembly, Blanton said, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, if I have seemed arrogant at times, I ask you to mark it down to my impatience with those who take my myopic view of the greatness and boundless potential of this state we love. He added, quote, I would never willingly do one single thing to hurt this state or its people. During the governor's speech, he tried to highlight some of his successes. Blanton's economic development commissioner, Tom Benson, worked to boost the state's agriculture products into international markets. 
In Blanton's final week in office, the Banner's editorial board said the governor's legacy includes the fact that new taxes were avoided and he issued some well-deserved vetoes. Despite such accomplishments, the Banner's editorial ultimately concluded, quote, And now the days fade and there is another feeling of apprehension, of barely controlled hostility, that murderers unjustly will find themselves the beneficiaries of Mr. Blanton's authority. Mr. Blanton can control these events, can salvage something of his reputation. But, as ever, the question again becomes... Is he listening at all to the voice of the people? A dead district attorney, a dead barber, a drug-addicted judge, a businessman hiding, armed and scared. One woman, one name, binds them all. Raynella. The fabric of her life is woven with tragedy and violence, politics and pain, and even now, suspense. Come meet her on Season 1 of Suspicion, available on just about every major podcast platform. If you thought things were crazy before this, this is where it gets really crazy. In one of his last acts as governor of Tennessee, Ray Blanton, a target of a federal investigation of an alleged parole selling scheme, has cut the sentences of a number of murderers and other convicts. On January 15, 1979, Blanton does what arguably might be his most daring act. Monday night, January 15, 1979, Governor Blanton came down to the state capitol and granted 52 pardons and paroles and clemencies. In an extraordinary late night signing session in his office. To some of the most dangerous offenders in the state prison, many of whom the FBI believed had paid cash for their release. And one of them was Roger Humphreys. He turned around to the Secretary of State, Gentry Crowell, and said, this takes guts. And Gentry Krause said back to him, yeah, some people have more guts than brains. And this caused a, I mean, it was like dropping a match in a can of gasoline in terms of public attention and... It was like a bomb had been dropped in Nashville and people were calling for, for me to somehow come in early based upon Trip Hunt's opinion and people were completely fed up with it. Incoming Governor Lamar Alexander called the pardon sickening and said Blanton's latest actions were a disgrace to the office. It was disgraceful to the office of governor and, and uh, contemptuous to the people of the state. So here we are, January 17th, 1979, the day of the coup. Here's a retelling of what happened between Alexander and Hal Hardin, then the U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Tennessee. On January 17th, I, I was actually pacing the, the floor in the courthouse real early in the morning. It was about 1130. It was a cold, wintry January national day. I was sitting in my transition office in Hobbs Road writing my inaugural address for Saturday. I went back to my office. 
and I knew what was going on, and we had a lot of intelligence on what was going on in the Capitol. And uh, one of the agents that was assigned to it came to me and said, let me give you an update on what's going on. All of the hullabaloo of Monday night and Tuesday morning had kind of settled down, and we were one day closer to a normal swearing in. And I was glad of that because you don't run for governor for five years and get elected and, and want to go in 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 that kind of turmoil and some sort of uncertainty of an early swearing in. And it was it was pretty dramatic. And he, he said, I said, you know, when's this going to take place? And he said, well, any, any minute, probably the governor was going to release a lot more. And some people that we had under investigation. And there was actually worry. I would say, that one of the names on the new list that they hadn't seen yet, uh, but that was presumably being prepared in the governor's ground floor office, um, might be James Earl Ray. James Earl Ray. You catch that? That's the guy who killed Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis in 1968. Now, even now, 40 years later, that gives me a chill told him, I said, you know, well, how sure is the FBI about this new intelligence? And he said, uh, we're very sure. And uh, he said, what are you going to do about it? The agent asked me. The agent asked me. And I looked at him because I made up my mind right then what I was going to do. I said, you don't want to know. So I was sitting there thinking that it all died down and whatever problems there were would not interfere with the Saturday swearing in. And I didn't want them to know. I didn't want the FBI to know, and I didn't want my office to know because I, I thought if, if this goes south, uh, I should be the only one to blame for it. And also it, it just didn't look right in the investigation for somebody in, in the federal government to be meddling in state politics, if you will. I, I knew if it went south, uh, I'd, I would certainly be fired. So uh, take me back to, okay, you've got it made up in your mind what you have to do. Then what do you do? You call up Lamar Alexander Directly? I called him up directly, and I said, uh, uh, Lamar, this is Hal Harden. We knew each other casually, and I respected him. I said, I'm calling you uh, for two reasons. I said, first of all, I'm calling you as a Tennessean. I'm not calling you as a United States attorney. I I think it's something you need to know. And the second reason I'm calling you is I think it's an obligation of a U.S. attorney to pass along to state officials activity that could affect the state And I told him, I said, I think you've got to take uh, uh, office early in order to stop what's going on. There's no other remedy available. And I paused for a moment and said, Hal, um, let me call you back. And the reason I did that was, one, to give myself time to think, and two, to make sure it was him. (laughs) Because I, you know, it could have been a prank call. But he was a rising young Democrat appointed by President Carter formerly appointed judge by Governor Blanton, whom he was calling about. And I wanted to make sure this was on the level. But it never occurred to me, really, during the time between my election in November until January 20th, until very close to the inaugural day, that Governor Blanton might actually begin to grant wholesale pardons and clemencies to prisoners who had paid cash for their release. And that and it certainly never occurred to me until right up until before that swearing in that I might be asked to take off early to stop that. This was basically a coup. It was 
not the kind of thing we did in the United States of America, and that uh, it was the kind of thing where 100 things could go wrong and 99 of them probably would. And so I spent the next five hours with Louis Donaldson and Tom Ingram and, and talking to Hal Harden to try to make sure that as many of those 99 things that could go wrong didn't go wrong. And, and I imagine that the, the risk element, that, that idea that 99 things could go wrong, uh, as I'm talking to Hal Harden, he's essentially saying I'm putting it all out on the line. And if this goes south, that's the end of my job. You know, I could get fired by the president, among others. Uh, you've got to be in the same way, right? If you don't do this in the right way, as a new governor, this could be the biggest mistake you've made. Yeah, I mean, it'd be like like taking your first step into any sort of venture and walking right off the cliff into a big mud puddle. And not just for me and Hal, but for the state, because we were badly embarrassed right then by what had been going on with Governor Blanton. I mean, it was all over the national news, Tennessee governor selling pardons for cash, FBI investigation. And then if the next thing you read is incoming governor tries a coup and it doesn't work, that would be worse. For example, one thing that could go wrong would be the governor is in charge of the National Guard. That's 40,000 uh, armed people. What if Governor Blanton surrounded the Capitol and, and to keep me out? Or the governor is also in charge of the Highway Patrol. That's several hundred officers. He could do the same with those officers. So I had to think through those things. What would happen if the governor found out about this while we were planning it and took steps to stop it. None of us were really on board with it. I didn't want to do it. McWhorter didn't want to do it. Wilder didn't want to do it. I mean, think about this. They were the Democratic leaders of the state, and this was their Democratic governor. And and Senator John Wilder was Ray Blanton, the governor's state senator. That was his home territory. So here they were being asked to do something that is totally out of character for the American system of government, take their own governor and throw him out of office and put in a Republican. After Hardin began talking to Alexander, other players needed to be involved. One of them was the state attorney general, William Leach, again a Democrat, and a few of his deputies, including Bill Koch. The AG's office needed to definitively say whether it was legal for Alexander to take office early. There had been competing opinions at one point on the matter, and that needed to be resolved immediately. Here's Bill Koch, a former Supreme Court justice and then a deputy to the attorney general, talking about that time. So the first I heard of it was really a telephone call from Bill Leach saying, you and Hayes Cooney need to get in the car. You need to follow a very circuitous route so nobody follows you. And you need to meet us in my room at the Sheraton Hotel across the street from the post office. You know, we're up on X floor in room number so-and-so and you know, come on up there. So that's really the first that Cooney and I knew that something was going on. We didn't know what till we got in the room. So you get in the room, and who's there? Uh, what happens? Well, it's Hal Harden, Bill Leach, Hayes Cooney, and me. And essentially the, the discussion is that Harden says, I've told the governor-elect, I've told the two speakers that I have reason to believe that people are going to be let out of prison who bought their way out. Uh, they want a definitive answer on whether it's legal to swear the governor in early or not, so we're not going to leave this room until we resolve that question. You know, we had toted a couple of copies of the Tennessee Code over there that had the relevant portions in it, and uh, it we started around 11.30 or 12, and by about, uh, I'd say, 2.30 or 3, uh, we finally all four got to the same place where we said, in fact, 
the original opinion was correct that the governor could be sworn in. And so I get dispatched to go over to invite Chief Justice Henry to swear the governor in. Justice Henry initially says, well, I really don't think that that's something I want to get involved in. And when I said, well, if you don't do it, somebody else is going to. And he says, well, I'll do it. (laughs) And so he gets dressed and comes back to his office. He does not consult any of his other colleagues on the Supreme Court. They did not know until after the ceremony was over that he he was doing that. And several of them were extremely unhappy that the chief justice administered the oath, and primarily because they were convinced that there were going to be legal challenges Mm -hmm. to the proceeding, and that would taint the impartiality of the court because of the chief justice. Well, and how does it rise up the Tennessee court system if you have the chief justice there? Yeah, that's that's right. There was a group of people came out of McWhorter's office with their overcoats on and started walking down the hall, and none of them would talk. So all the reporters followed in behind them, and we all proceeded down through the legislative plaza hallway, up the escalator, and out onto Charlotte Avenue. And then we turned and walked down to the Supreme Court building. And then we walked in the Supreme Court building, and everybody was kind of like, nobody really knew why we were there, what was happening. About 5 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, I meet Alexander at the basement door to the to the Supreme Court room where the garage is, and we go upstairs, and this group assembles in the robing room, which is about three times the size of the room we're in. It's where judges put on their robes to walk out onto the bench. And as people are getting ready to walk out the door, someone says, should we tell Governor Blanton? And at this point, all this had been done in secret because there was concern that Governor Blanton, if he got wind of this, might nationalized part of the National Guard, call out the Highway Patrol. But this was being done in complete secrecy. So somebody says, well, should we tell the governor? And they finally decide, yes, the, you know, the governor, uh, it would be a polite thing to do to tell Governor Blanton that, that they're getting ready to swear the new governor in early. And so then the question becomes, well, who's going to do it? You know, nobody wants to step <laughs> up and say, well, no I'll, I'll, I'll do it. So, so they finally decide that Ned McWhorter, West Tennessean, knows the governor, had a good relationship, as good as you could have during his term. They say, well, you ought to do it. And McWhorter says, okay, I'll do it. Of course, back then we don't have cell phones, we don't have PDAs, stuff like that. So uh, McWhorter's uh, assistant, Jim Kennedy, carries the black book where everybody's names and addresses and contact information. And so he turns to Kennedy and says, do you have the governor's new number? Because at this point, uh, Blanton had moved into his private residence, and of course Kennedy had, Kennedy always had the number. So he says, "Yeah, I have the number." So there's an old rotary phone sitting in the robing room, and and Kennedy picks up the phone, dials the number. Is everybody watching this? At oh that yeah, we're all sitting there watching. Yeah, and and, and you got one of these big handsets, so you can hear <laughs> what's going on on the phone. And dials the number. You could hear it ringing. He hands it to McWhorter, and. Miss Blanton, Betty Blanton answers the phone, and Speaker McWhorter says, Miss Blanton, this is Ned Ray McWhorter, is Governor Blanton there? And she says, just a moment. And so there's, you know, 15, 20 seconds, and then you hear Blanton's voice, hello. And McWhorter says, Governor Blanton, General Leach has something to tell you, and hands the phone to the Attorney General. 
these are not very happy days for Tennessee. This is not a happy day for me. I, Lamar Alexander. I, Lamar Alexander. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. I will perform with fidelity. That I will perform with fidelity. Okay, my question being that the man you just swore in is a Republican. Uh, you are a Democrat, and, and most of the people who, who participated in the decision to swear him in early are Democrats. The man, the man you, I, first, I'm a Tennessean, and I think this is in the interest of Tennessee, regardless of the party. The duties of the office of governor. The duties of the office of governor. Of the state of Tennessee. Of the state of Tennessee. To which I have been elected. To which I have been elected. And which I am about to assume. And which I am about to assume. Uh, it was concern, and it had weighed heavy on us, and uh, uh, we did what we thought was a responsible thing to do. When history looks at the Blanton administration and this transfer of power, how will it be reckoned? I think that it will be recorded that Ray Blanton was his own worst enemy. I will support the Constitution. That I will support the Constitution. Of the state of Tennessee. Of the state of Tennessee. And the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Four days later, on January 20th, 1979, Alexander once again took the oath of office during a regularly scheduled inauguration. In his speech, he urged an audience of onlookers to, quote, go the extra mile to put the agony and the anger behind us. Let's let our pain give way to pride again. In June 1981, Blanton was convicted of mail fraud, conspiracy, and extortion to sell liquor licenses. He served 22 months in federal prison. He died in 1996. As they look back on the extraordinary events from 40 years ago, Alexander Hunt and others think there are still lessons that can be learned today. I think that any reasonable person who was in my position that had that information would share it. I don't have any regrets at having done it. I would do it again. I think that most of the people that I admire and respect and know would do the same thing. In fact, we didn't talk about this for 30 years. I mean, there was no, there was no uh, dancing in the end zone. I mean, nobody celebrated. Uh, it was a sad day, and it still is a sad day. But in the end, I decided that the coup was not so much a story of bad guys doing wrong as good guys doing right. Good guys doing right. They set aside that partisanship to deal with this problem, and they took care of business. So I think the lesson for today is that it's not naive to think that grown-ups, sophisticates in politics, can still be rough-and-tumble, good, effective partisan politicians. And when the elections are over, they can put down those political weapons and, and work together to get results. That's not naive, that's actually the way the system is supposed to work. Turned out to be sort of a bipartisan boot camp 
me, we learned to work with each other and trust each other and didn't backpedal on each other in an extraordinary circumstance. And that formed the basis for the way we worked together for the next eight years. That's it. That's the story of the coup. Thanks again for listening to Grand Divisions. As usual, you can find us on iTunes, where we hope you continue to rate us. It's available every Tuesday. This podcast couldn't have been done without the great help of John Garcia, my producer. I'm Joel Ebert. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.